Well, let me add a good morning to you as well. My name is, is Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you came in this morning, like, we, cha- we changed everything again. Like, the whole room is different again. Well, I mean, a few reasons. One is we are already running out of, of chairs in the space. So why church? One answer that I'm, I'm sure most of you might disagree with, and, and certainly some of you might even be offended by, that the reason the church is so important to us is because we believe the local church is the hope of the world. It's okay if you disagree. Uh, I've not believed that statement for most of my life. But before you immediately dismiss it, and before you even think, well, Tim, you're a pastor, that's the exact sort of thing a pastor would say. Pastor thinks the church is really important, big surprise. Um, right? But before you dismiss that, I would say, first of all, I, most of my life I've not been a pastor than having been a pastor. And then secondly, as a pastor, I actually think I have more reason to be cynical about that statement than many of, many of you in this room. That when I was a freshman in high school, actually, I did not like the church. My parents made me go. I thought most Christians were hypocrites, and I had, I had a lot of evidence to back that claim up. The, the, the students who were leaders in my youth group both drank and slept around. I mean, morally, they were nothing um, close to what Jesus called us to be. And so I saw that hypocrisy, and it just made me uninterested in the church. And then on top of that, the, the youth moral, or the youth pastor um, at the church that uh, I was attending with my family had a, had a huge moral failing Um, which for the moment only deepened my cynicism about the local church. But for the next two years after that, when most of my friends checked out of the church and gave up on the church and left the church, I gave my life to it. That I I began to see, I didn't feel, that the local church is the hope of the world, and that's where my life should be spent. And so... If you think that's the reason why, that, that's not a reason. But, but as a pastor, let me just say, I, I encounter the worst of the church alongside the best. Now, for example, when I was in Indiana as a pastor, a, a congregant's mother was having life-saving uh, brain surgery. And so I went to spend most of the surgery with the family. And the congregant, um, he didn't have much faith. His family didn't have much faith. His mother, who was in surgery, and his father, who was, who was there with us in the waiting room, he didn't have any faith. Um, so this is largely a non-Christian or new Christian family. And then his sister came, and she brought her son. And her, his sister actually was a Christian, but her son was not. He had left the church. He was in college age. He was not a, a Christian at that point. And so this, this woman and, and her son started arguing in the waiting room while her mother is in, in brain surgery. And for some reason, the argument goes to the fact that when he was in high school, his mother grounded him from church from time to time. He's not a Christian at this point, but he's, he's just like, isn't that the most ridiculous? He looks at me. Isn't that the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard? A mother grounding her son from church. And I'm just like, this is, I don't want to be here right now. Like, get me out. Um, rescue. And, and then his mother, who's the Christian, looks at me and says, no, I was right, wasn't I? That if, if a child loves something, then you take it from them as a discipline. I should have grounded him from church, shouldn't I? I, I was just stunned that she put that question to me, that her mother was dying. Her father had no faith. Her brother had little faith. Her son had no faith. And she wants to use this moment to litigate parental decisions. I mean, I'm there because I want to share the gospel. Hey, whatever happens today, Jesus is present. He's here. He loves you. That's what I want to use this moment for this. And I, I can't. And I've had many more moments like that, moments where Christians have done inexplicable Things either personally to me to hurt me, or also just just broadly, really things that just went counter to the Bible, to the Scriptures, to the life God calls us to. And so, before 
You think that I just believe this because I'm a pastor. Listen, I've had to work through this as a pastor. And yet I believe today more so than ever before that the local church is the hope of the world. And I want to spend three weeks unpacking that statement. Why I think the local church is, is deserving of the bulk of your financial generosity. It's deserving of your time and your talents and your gifts. It's deserving of your heart and your passion. Why Sunday morning should be a time you're here each Sunday. And this morning we're starting in that text Andrew read for us, Ephesians 2. And the first way I want to say, listen, I, I do think the local church is the hope of the world is because I think the local church has the best story. The story we tell as a church every week is a story that it knows us, it rescues us, and it is for everyone. So I want to pack Ephesians 2 under those three headings. It, the story we tell as Christians, it, it knows us, it, it rescues us, and it is, it is for everyone. It's for you. So this story, it knows us. And I realize the, the moment I say both the local church is the hope of the world and that we have the best story, that sounds like an arrogant statement. But, but the reality is every person lives within the framework of a story they think is the best story. And so if you, you live in a world where you think the good life is pursuing your own personal happiness, that this world ultimately is constructed around being happy, then you'll make your decisions and navigate your life around that is, your, that is your story. It will decide what, what jobs you take. It will decide if you have kids, if you get married. It will decide where you live. If you think this world is constructed around a story of, our, of everyone pursuing their own happiness, it drives the way in which you live. In every religion, it tells a story about the world. Every atheist believes a story about the world. And you, whether it's the Christian story or it's some alternative story, every person believes a story about the world. And I think the church has the best story. And I realize that sounds arrogant, but Ephesians 2, it starts by something that, that would make it seem like the church doesn't have the best story because the church says that, that our story, it knows you, and it could not be scarier. And mo- most people I don't, that I've encountered don't have any trouble acknowledging that they have some sort of personality flaws. They, they have character flaws they need to work on. It's why there's a large self-help section in every bookstore. I think we all have a, a recommendation or, or an understanding, I'm flawed in some way, but the story the church tells, it goes far beyond just some minor character flaws you have to iron out, some, some minor problems you have as a part of your life. Paul in Ephesians 2 says, your problem, it's way worse than that. And so before we press on, I wanted to pause and read again the first three verses. What Paul says, the story knows about you and about me. That before God, before you knew Christ, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As I said, Paul's not saying you have some minor character flaws or that I have some minor character flaws that needs to be worked out. He says three things that should both scare you and probably offend you. The, the one he says, if, if you don't know God, everyone who doesn't know God, which is how every human being starts, you're, you are dead. And think of the last funeral that you went to. The last funeral I remember, it was, it was Missy's grandfather's funeral. I, it was a man I, I had never met. He was estranged from most of his family because of his alcoholism. But in the last days of his life, Misty's mom went to live with him and, and spend time with him. And since the funeral is in St. Louis, and that's a doable drive for us from Kansas City, and they asked me to speak at it, we loaded up our two boys um, at the time, and we drove to St. Louis to be a part of the funeral. And it, was, it was hard, even though I didn't know him. 
There was this, because of his life, there was this added sense of death as this hopeless thing that death is suffocating. Death is, is, is every last second chance gone. The only time this man would be around his great-grandsons is after he was dead, his lifeless body, while his two sons wondered who this, this man was. And Paul is saying, that, that is me, that is you spiritually, is dead, is dead. But he actually, he gets worse, it gets worse. He starts with that, well, you're dead, and then he says, well, and you're also a slave. That Paul says that, that you and I, apart from God, we follow the course of the, this world, the prince of the power of the air, which is, is another title for Satan. And don't you ever wonder why, why people so willingly destroy their lives over alcohol or drugs or, or some other vice? Why people often ruin their lives over greed? Why, why they know that, that the money they're chasing after, them, after, after will ruin them, but they keep chasing why hate is so easily kindled in our heart where there are things you and I can't quit doing as hard as we've tried. The story that the church tells, that we tell as a church, is that this world isn't just an inherently good place where it's really easy to be a good person. No, it's, there is supernatural evil that conspires against us that leads to this vast amount of evil that's a part of humanity. So it's not, listen, it, spiritually you're not just dead, but you're also, you're trapped, you're a slave following the course of this world, and then the third one, and this as as, a, as offensive as the first two are, this is the th- the third one is the ones most people have a trouble with when it comes to the story of Christianity. It is that you are under the wrath of God. So what, what does that mean? Because it, it makes God sound angrier, vindictive, or like He's uncaring or He's cruel. But but imagine with me just for a moment a single mom. She has a son. She's a single mom. She works two jobs to make sure there's food on the plate that he gets into, he's in a good school, that there's a, there's a house in which to live. She works really hard. She, when she gets off work, she doesn't go home to rest. She goes home to, um, to, to take him to his activities, to make sure he's engaged, he's growing, he's getting smarter. He does really well in school because of all of her effort, gets into a good college, goes through college. She takes on a third job to make sure that, that he has enough um, to get through college, to get through without any any debt, and so finally he graduates with honors. He gets a really good paying job because of his degree, and, and it's such a good paying job, he actually could, his mom could stop working, he could buy her a house, he could get her a car. Um, finally, he could begin to provide for her, and so he asks her to, to sit down and, and have a conversation. Let's talk about our future together. And so they sit down, and the son says to his mom, I don't ever want to see you again. I don't owe you anything. You don't owe me anything anymore, and this is the last time that you'll, you'll ever see me. That what would be the proper response of the mom in that moment? Because the Bible, the way it unpacks our rebellion against God is, is that story. Is that God has poured out everything into us. He's given us gifts. He's given us life. We would not take another breath if he did not will it. And yet our, much of us live week to week, day to day, without even acknowledging his existence. That what would be the proper response of a mom in that moment? But further than that, God, the, the, the theology of God's judgment is one of the most misunderstood doctrines in the Bible. That, that most people think, well, what God's judgment, God's wrath means is that people say, God, I'm sorry, have mercy on me. I, I'm, I did the wrong things. And God's like, no, I don't like you. Get away. And, you're going, you know, and that, that's sort of the thing is that we, we run off pleading for mercy. And God says, no, but that's not the way Ephesians 2 unpacks our story here. It's not the way that, that, 
God's judgment or wrath over us is defined at all. What Paul says is that you and I, we live in the passions of our flesh. We do what we want to do. We carry out the desires of our body. We want a life without God, and that's why we live the life without God. So judgment isn't God saying to us, I'm not going to give you what you want. Judgment is is God saying to us, you don't want me? Fine, go, live. And it's hell. It's wrath. It's judgment. It's it's terrible. Now maybe you you hear me unpack the Christian story as, hey, you're dead. Apart from God, you're dead. You're a slave. You're under the wrath of God. I think this this actually doesn't sound like the best story. This actually sounds like the worst story um, ever. Well, two things. First, the story's not over yet. But secondly, um, this actually should be strangely encouraging to all of us. Because it means every human being is, is equal. The Paul doesn't say there's some people who aren't dead and some people who are. No, everyone's dead. Everyone apart from God is, is equally dead. So there's no person who's morally superior. There's no person with a leg up. There's no person whom in their natural state God looks at and favors more than another. It's why I think this is the best story. Because whether you're the president or whether you're a drug, drug addict, you are the same before the living God. Whether you are Mother Teresa or you are a prostitute, God sees you and your sin and your rebellion in no different, no different terms. Now the church, it's the only place where everyone is truly equal. And in a season of, of life where we're entering into this election, and even just this week there was a moment where it's just so clear. People just put, put people in categories of you're just beyond the pale. You're, just, you're a loser. I don't even want to talk to you. I don't even want to speak to you. And most stories do that, but our story doesn't. There's, there's no one basket of people who is worse than others. We're all in that basket together. We're all dead. We're all slaves. We're all under the wrath of God. The story, it knows you, and it could not be scarier. But as I said, it's not where the story starts, stops, because the story doesn't just, doesn't just call out what's flawed in you. It, it tells of our rescue. And so here's where Paul goes next in verse 4. So we're dead, we're slaves, we are under God's wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. These verses should should just stun us. After, I mean, after the last three verses, these verses should just cause us to Paul because no story explains God like this. No religion explains God like this. No world understanding of God. Not even the people who say, God is love, that's all he is. Explain God with the depth that is explained here. And so maybe this morning you, you walked in and you're, just, you're, not, you're not convinced God really loves you. You're not convinced God really wants to speak to you. You're not really convinced you can speak with, with God. Well, let these verses... Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, let these verses just blow that feeling, those emotions, out of the water. Let's just work through these, these words slowly and briefly so that none of us in this room who relate to God through Christ have any doubt as to God's disposition towards you. That God is rich in mercy towards you. He didn't just love you with a love. He loved you with a great love. And He, he doesn't just welcome you into His kingdom 
with, with a scornful eye. He says that he wants to seat you in the heavenly places with Christ. Other, what that means is that he wants you to not just get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, but when you get there, you're going to reign. You're going to have influence. You're going to have importance. The work you do will carry on. He wants you to be an important person there. That He wants to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace. I don't know how deep your bank account goes. I don't know if you've if you ever watched uh, DuckTales growing up, the duck that, that drove into the big the big swimming pool of gold money. Sorry, that just relates to me. Maybe it doesn't to you, but God's storehouses of riches towards you, it is it is incomparable. You cannot think of the immeasurable riches of God's grace towards you. And he does not look at you in anger. He looks on you in kindness through Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to rescue you, and there is no better story than this. And Missy and I, we recently watched the Netflix uh, show Stranger Things, um, which is really great. I, I recommend it. Um, and it's awesome because it does what every story, every good story does. It, it completely rips off our gospel story as a church. In fact, they should probably be paying royalties to us because they, they steal our story. Although it's not quite as good, but it's... It's really similar, and I won't, I won't give away the ending, but at one point in the ending, at the end of Stranger Things, a mother and her friend has to enter into a hellish reality to rescue her son. Death is almost certain, there's little hope, but she goes in anyway. Which is exactly the story Paul is telling about Jesus to you and me. We were in a hellish reality, we were, in, we were dead, we were slaves, we were under God's wrath, and Jesus went in. Only in his case, death wasn't a possibility. Death was a certainty. And he went anyway. The only way you and I can know Jesus' kindness is if he knows God's wrath. The only way you and I can know God's mercy is if Jesus knows his judgment. And the only way you and I can be made alive is if he dies. And that is our story as, as Christians. And that's why, above all else, we plant new churches because we believe God spares no, expenses, no expense to go and rescue people to himself. And let me just pause. I mean, we're, in, we're in sort of that, that 18, 19-month phase where it's like, oh, this is hard work. We're in a school, right? It's, it's lots to do to set up and tear down. And I, I want to pause this for a minute because one advantage we have that churches with buildings and churches that have been around for a long time have is they lose this, this nature of God. And church becomes this inward thing where we're here to get something. We're here to receive something. But this, the story of the, of the God of the Bible is that he is on mission to find people to rescue them. In a new church, we don't keep existing unless new people keep finding that story and keep entering into that story. And so, yes, it's a lot of hard work in this phase of things for us, but let us leverage that to know something that is so easily to lose in most and many churches in our context, which is that we are here, we are here not to get something. I mean, I hope you do, and I think you will. But we are here because we believe God has more people to rescue in our neighborhoods in our, our workplaces, in our community, at the school he wants to be an influence and his kingdom to break in. And we believe that. And so we start new communities with the truth of Ephesians 2 as our driving force. We believe God will, will spare no expense to rescue people. And so there's no one too far gone. There's no one whom I can look, out, look at and write off. And the story, it's too good for that. It rescues us. And I think it's easy for us as Christians to forget that. And so I even want to pause um, for a minute. Over the next few weeks, we're just going to show videos of, of, of how God has been at work in the people, um, lo- people's lives at Christ Community. And so I want to pause and just, just let a story be told of how God has rescued someone in our congregation at Christ Community in the last few months. So take a look. And so let's not forget, our God is a God who rescues. That is his mission. That is what Ephesians 2 is saying. And so the story we have as a church is the best story because it knows us. 
Couldn't be worse, couldn't be scarier. It, it rescues us, and, and thirdly, um, it's for everyone. It's for you. The most stories that human beings live by um, inherently exclude people. I, I hinted at this earlier. If you're a liberal, you exclude conservatives. If you're conservative, you exclude liberals. If you're a Royals fan, you exclude Cardinals and White Sox fans. And as a Cubs fan, I completely am on board with that. They should not be included in anything. Um, but mo- most world stories, they exclude by, by their inherent nature, but not Christianity, because we're all equal. We're all dead. We're all slaves. That if this story can rescue anyone, it can rescue everyone. And so there's no one we can write off. And, and, and so maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, Tim, I agree. Christianity is a really interesting story. The, the gospel is a really cool story. God loves people. He saves people. But I don't need the church to have that story. Right? I just, I, the church isn't connected to the story in any way. And that's where I would say, yeah, it, you don't have the story without the church. Then imagine that the Chiefs playing their opener today in front of a crowd of, of nobody. Just an empty stadium. It'd be different. It'd be, it'd be boring. It wouldn't be as, as fascinating. Or have you ever watched a, a movie by yourself? As opposed to in a theater. That Once I watched a comedy in New York City. Um, the theater had like 2,000 people. And the movie wasn't even good, but I laughed. Because there were 2,000 people around me laughing at things that were not funny. That there's something about community that makes a story more compelling. It's why Jesus, even in John 17 stress that this church, the church community, its unity together would be the thing that makes the story, God's love, compelling to the rest of the world. And so you need the church to make the story compelling. You cannot say the gospel's for everyone without a church. And so what does that mean for you? What does this mean for, for me? I want, I want to end us with three questions that, that we should all be asking as we, as we think through the next few weeks. What does it mean that the local church is the hope of the world? Three questions. The first, have you embraced this hope? Is this your, your story? And if not, if you're not a Christian, we want to be a place where, where people who aren't Christians can explore and ask questions. And, and I just hope the reason you're not a Christian is because you don't think you're moral enough or because you don't think you measure up. Because hopefully you've just heard, undefined, or heard out defined that the, the Christian story doesn't make you measure up. It, you start dead. You start a slave. You start um, under the wrath of, of God. You don't have to measure up to get into our story. But even more than that, I would say, and this isn't, I'm not saying reading books or exploring um, are bad things, but you, you don't need another book to read. You don't, you don't need to think more about your spirituality. You need to ask Jesus to rescue you and save you. Because you're dead. You, you won't understand the, the, the richness of this gospel until he invades your life. So ask him. Ask him to. And if you are a Christian, I would ask, have you really embraced this hope? Is this really the story driving your life? Are you fearless when it comes to the way you live your life? That you know that you're forgiven, that there's not really anything on the line when it comes to your, your future because it has been won for you in Jesus. And so do you pray with boldness? Do you live with confidence? That God looks on you with kindness. Do you sing like that is true? When you go to the communion table, do you receive that meal as if Jesus, the God of the universe, has really in, entered into your reality and died for you? Do you pray like that is true? Do you speak to your neighbors like that is true? Do you work like that is true? Have you embraced this, this hope? And secondly, are, are you living this story? That Paul ends out with, with one verse of implications for Christians in verse 10. And so I want to read that. That if all this is true, if you've been rescued by Jesus, this should be true of you. For we are his workmanship, right? God rescued us. He saved us. He, we are his work. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That you and I were created for good works. 
Don't, don't just think like that means private morality or that means you need to volunteer at church. No, good works is this all-encompassing life that includes your work and your vocation. Do you work and produce good work through your work from week to week? That when you find injustice, do you, do you create good works that fight against it? When you find poverty, do you create good works that work against it? That we are to be people who, who lead to the flourishing of others because we were created for Good work. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was killed under the Nazi regime, said, the church, is only, the church is the church only when it exists for others. That's what Paul's getting at when he says that you and I were created for good works. This is outward-facing life where we both share the gospel in word and deed, and the fruit of our life causes others to see the beauty of the church and the beauty of the story we tell. So those are the first two questions. The third, the third question is, who, who knows this hope because of you? Now, I've told countless people, and now another room full of people, how great the show Stranger Things is. That I've sat silently judging people who've told me that they did not like it and did not watch all of it. I don't know what's wrong with those people. Right, but when you encounter a compelling story, you, you, you tell others. You retell it, or you encourage them to go and engage it. Is there a more compelling story than this? And maybe, it's, maybe, the, maybe the Ephesians 2, it's not true. But if it is, if it, who have you told? Who are you telling? That when, when was the last time you heard someone's life was unraveling, it was getting harder, and rather than doing what most of us want to do, which is exit, you went further in to tell them this story. When was the last time you... Invited someone to church. When was the last time, more importantly, that you told someone how this story has changed you, your life? How you were dead, but you have been made alive through Jesus and God's kindness. You and I, we're moved by stories and we live by stories. We know that Harry Potter has to go fight and kill Voldemort to make the the world safe again. We know that Frodo has to go into Mordor to destroy the ring. We know Luke Skywalker has to find a way to blow up the death star. Right? We know Aslan can't really be dead on the stone table. We live by stories. We tell stories. We listen to stories. And there's a reason we do that. The reason we keep telling stories of death being overcome and evil being defeated. And when all hope looks lost, it's actually not because a hero comes in and rescues. And the reason is because all those stories point to the one true story. The story Ephesians 2 Talks about, and that's the reason C.S. Lewis became a Christian, is that he had read all of these, these mythic stories, and they had created in this heart a longing for death to be defeated, for evil to be overcome, that there would be some unassailable hope that people could grab onto, and despite the evil and suffering in this world, a hope that could penetrate all of the, the, the death and depression and sadness we encounter in this world. And C.S. Lewis found, Lewis, Lewis found that story in Christianity. He found that in Ephesians 2, an unassailable hope where God himself has entered into our story and rescued us through the death, the burial, the resurrection, the blood of his son Jesus Christ for you and me. And I hope that's your story. And that story is the reason I believe the local church is the hope of the world. So may we tell that story week after week after week here together.